Welcome to the Mimecast. This is Michael Jean Sullivan. Now, for the past 60 years, the Tony and Obie Award winning, and despite its name, never ever silent San Francisco mime troupe has brought its brand of revolutionary theater to audiences across the country and around the world. Their original musical comedies, and some dramas, but mainly comedies, have tackled social and economic and environmental justice, civil rights, workers' rights, gender equality, oppression at home and abroad, and how capitalism is essentially antithetical to democracy. Hundreds of artists, actors, designers, writers, directors, composers, lyricists, and choreographers have helped the mime troupe inform, entertain, and stir up the working class over the decades. And the Mimecast is a chance to get to know some of them a little bit better. Today, very fortunate to have Mime Troop veteran, ex-collective member, director, writer, actor, singer, and all-around interesting person, Wilma Benet. So, Wilma, thank you for being part of the Mimecast. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've been... You know, you had a career before the troupe and then with the troupe and then since the troupe and then worked with us again. But I want to kind of get, you know, get back to the beginning. So tell me, where were you born? Well, I was born in New York City. Um, really? Yes. I was born in New York City, um, Manhattan, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, not that long ago. My parents are Puerto Ricans. They're, mm-hmm. So first generation New York. And my parents came during um, the migration that that was taking place during 49 and 50. And they ended up in New York. My mom was a seamstress in the garment oh. district. And my dad mm-hmm. was literally a farm worker. And he did... Really? In New York? New York State. Apple. Oh, New York State. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But... I was I was born in New York City, in New York City. Mm-hmm. So my dad at one time had a bodega. He did a food truck when food trucks were coming in. Um, he was caterer. He did all kinds of stuff. He worked in, you know, he just tried to make a living, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I grew up. So in you New were York. saying there was a there was a migration in the late forties. I'd never heard from from Puerto Rico. I'd never heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, they needed uh, labor. So I think around that time, they also did, uh, they had the migration with the uh, Mexicans coming in. And Mm -hmm. a lot of Puerto Ricans were actually uh, recruited to go to even Hawaii to pick, um, uh, do sugar cane in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And, um, And they needed labor in New York and that's where my mom ended up and where my dad ended up. Yeah. So, and they moved together? Or no. did they meet in New York? They met in Puerto Rico. Oh, and okay. Yeah, the story's interesting. I don't know if I should get into it. No, but, go ahead. Uh, what's okay. The, what's the interesting so story? My brother's mother died. Mm-hmm. And my mom and my dad were girlfriend-boyfriend. And he was supposed to marry her, and she waited at the church for him, and he never showed up. 
No. She was jilted. She was oh, my jilted. goodness. Yeah. And so she had a heartbreak. She was so heartbroken yeah. and stuff like that. It took a couple of years before um, he actually contacted her and said, come to New York. So she came to New York. And so why didn't he show up? Was he just like he didn't feel like he could do it at that point? No idea. Mm. According to him, he had a lot of other girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> so there were yeah. a lot of churches he wasn't going to that day. Yeah. I'll marry you. I'll meet you in Ponce. I'll meet you in San Juan. I'll meet you wherever. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and my mom was was young, so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was definitely heartbroken when that happened. She had nobody, you know, except mm. sisters and her dad. But it, but eventually he contacted but, her and invited her to, to meet up with him yes. in New York. Yes. Wow. And she so did. Remember, he loved her. He just probably felt like he couldn't support her yet. That's the story I'm going to go with. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, okay. So, so you're born in New York. Um, uh, how how long how long did you stay in New York? I was in New York till seventy one, and then I moved mm. to the Bay Area. At that time, um, I had been married, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, my ex husband actually got an intern job with Channel Seven News as a cameraman. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I left uh, New York to move over here, and we came to Berkeley the first time. It was during that whole free speech movement that was taking place uh, at UC Berkeley, and so we were there. <laughs> we were all there. Um, when we were in New York, um, we did a lot of, um, we were, I actually was a, a uh, sound person for a a film with him because he was one of the cameramen and it was oh. the first time that the young lords opened the big Puerto Rican flag. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you should you probably tell some people because everybody may not know who the young lords were. The young so. lords, you? I know, but everybody else. Political- yeah, they were a big political organization, um, like the Black Panthers. In fact, they had a lot of close affiliation with the with the Black Panthers, and yeah. they did, you know, breakfast programs in New York. And um, basically, um, what ended up happening was this gang turned into a political organization, and mm-hmm. uh, and they started learning about their history and about Puerto Rico and and uh, things that are not in books, period. So yeah. for me, it was kind of shocking because my my only thing about Puerto Ricans that I was proud of was West Side Story. Mm-hmm. And even that's not, <laughs> if you look at the story, it's yeah, not really, really that great. Because, you know, they put Puerto Ricans in the light of gangs. So, yeah. um, and that was not my reality at all. Mm-hmm. I know it existed, but that was not my reality. And um, and so finding out about Puerto Rican history and how 
there were these political prisoners, um, Lolita Lebron and um, and these three prisoners that went into the Congress and shot it up in 1954, I believe. Yeah. And they were in prison for a long time. And during the, the 70s, uh, my ex-husband and I, you know, he he started talking about Lolita Lebron. And and I made a poster about Lolita Lebron with the letter that they found in her purse. And I was telling people who they were. I even named my daughter Lolita Lebron, Lolita, after Lolita Lebron. And not knowing that Lolita is actually a nickname for Dolores. Oh. Yeah. I did not know that. Huh. Hmm. I didn't know it either. So, yeah. So, so, so but yeah. I want to get back to, like, so when you were a kid and you were growing up and you are going to school, um, were you interested in theater or were you, what were you thinking you were going to do? I mean, you're, you know, your dad's got a bodega and your mother's uh, a seamstress. What were you thinking was going to be your path in life? there in New York? I wasn't very clear about it because I I didn't have such a great, um, what do you call it, um, trust in myself in terms of as somebody who's who has anything to say or for anybody to listen to. I mean, they mm. found out I was smart, so I got put into a very smart class, mm-hmm. you know, SP class or whatever it was, you know, for yeah. progress students. And I remember that I was the only Latina in that class. Really? And, and mm. there was another woman, another girl in that class. Um, uh, I remember her name, Nancy Macropolis. Wow. Who was Greek. Uh, we kind of kind of became friends because we both were poor. We mm. were poor. From poor households and we couldn't relate to everybody. You know, everybody was mm-hmm. from a rich family. Oh, yeah. And so, um, so whenever they said, you know, your highest grade was supposed to, the grade that you're supposed to have in order to stay in the class was 80%. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time, that's what was the grading. And yeah. and whenever they would mention that, you know, somebody has a low mark, like 70, we would look at each other and wonder who, which one of us it was. <laughs> we had absolutely <laughs> no self-esteem in terms right. of that. But I remember that I was so into... Um, Art history and um, and Egyptian history, oh, world wow. history in general, and Greek, and mm-hmm. so like like every Saturday morning I would listen to the radio to all the Greek stories, you know, like Narcissus oh, wow. and, and stuff like that. So um, yeah, so that was me, and my mom would always find books under me. When I would go to sleep, <laughs> you just kind of go to sleep on it. Yeah, I was sleeping in books underneath my ribs, <laughs> and mm. she was concerned. <laughs> but you know, she never said anything. She didn't know anything about you know the the history of the world and stuff like that. 
Mm -hmm. very small. But she wasn't threatened by you learning it. She was just like... No, she wasn't threatened by me. But, you know, there were things that I wanted to do, like, you know, hang out with some other people and stuff. And and she would go, mm -hmm, okay, but who's going to be there? And ta, 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 ta. You know, and I remember going to one of the girls' apartment mm -hmm. on, like, the second street and and um west end and their apartment was a complete floor wow <laughs> a complete floor and i was like there was a living room we weren't supposed to enter you know and all this stuff oh like did it have plastic on there? Okay. when i was a kid i remember that we had some friends who they had plastic on the rug not just on the sofa on the rug on and the rug. we couldn't enter the room like, Not me. We got plastic when we moved to the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> when we, my mom had finally a beautiful sofa, you know, kind of, kind of rococo or whatever it was. I didn't like it, but you know, and she put plastic on it, which was the hardest thing to sit on because your ass yeah. always got stuck to it. So well, hard, always harder for girls. Boys, at least we get pants, you know. But girls yeah. in those skirts, I remember we would visit my friends, like I said, and my sisters would just sit on it. And some, and for my grandparents that had the plastic on the sofa, it was yeah. always in the sun and it would just get oh, so hot. That, that's the worst. That's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I always felt like I was peeling my thighs off the damn sofa. <laughs> no. Yeah. It hurt. It hurt. Yeah. So basically, I went to. Um, elementary school and and junior high school in Manhattan on 80th Street. And so mm -hmm. my playground was Central Park and the mm. Natural Museum and the Metropolitan Museum. I knew everything wow. in that museum. People mm -hmm. would come as tourists and they would say, hey, do you know where the exhibit of man is? And I say, yeah, go to the third floor. Da, 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 da. You know, we knew, my brothers and my yeah. sisters, you know. So, um, yeah, so that was my education. Of, of, it, it's like interesting you were talking about history because, you know, I was a history major. I didn't study. I wasn't a theater oh, major. Yeah. I was a history major. And my specialty when I was growing up was also it was Greek history, Greek mm. and Egyptian history. Yeah. And that's my parents kind yes. of, you know, flooded the house with with these because, you know, just that those history of the stories and the philosophy and all of that stuff. And like, this is this key thing. And so yeah. that's really very much what I grew up around. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. And I was surrounded by it. I really, really was fascinated by history. And I had a great um, teacher in fifth grade, Mrs. Rocker, who had little glasses mm -hmm. like this. Very, very, very hard on us. Every morning we read the New York Times. You had hmm. to... The Times, and you had to stand up and read an article. And, wow. Yeah. That's cool. And I mean, then, it's frightening. It is frightening. It was frightening. And then she would take yeah. us, every time we reached a certain point in history, like for the Revolutionary War, we went to the Metropolitan Museum and check out the rooms that they had with that, that time period. And then for mm -hmm. the Civil War, we went to uh, the New York Historical Society, which is a fabulous museum in New York. Uh, and they had every piece of costume, cannons, everything. And so, you know, you get to see a little piece of, of history. 
and and you know that it existed because there it is. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. So it kind of puts everything in perspective, gives it a three D effect of of mm-hmm. his, which I now know that I was very privileged to have that woman as as a great history teacher. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, for high school, by high school, we moved to the Bronx and I ended up, I tried out for three. Oh, yeah. Well, I was in junior high is when I first got the acting book. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what happened? It was very interesting. I liked the boy. <laughs> it was, and mind you, it was uh uh, it was Miles Davis' son who had these oh, wow. green eyes, and he played the bass in the jazz group. Mm-hmm. But I was too shy. I could not get myself to even say hello mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, I was just too damn shy, and I had these two friends who actually said, well, you're too damn shy. You have to join the drama club. As, as mm, it, really? It says, yeah, because you got to get out of that, you know? So I joined the drama club, and that's where I learned Commedia dell'arte. Really? So they were teaching that in middle school, or at least exposing you to it? They were teaching us that. And it was this teacher who was also an English, English teacher during the day, and she was black and spoke huh. impeccable English. I wanted to talk like her. Hmm. I believe she did a lot of tutoring to people on Broadway and shit. Mm. Oh, that's nice. So I was in a play that she, you know, she directed and stuff like that. And my first play, oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. Everybody in the audience, which was the other students, were like talking and laughing and everything during the whole performance. And she came on stage and she was like, they are performing for you. You must be quiet and give them their attention. And I was like, whoa. And everybody got quiet. And we finished the show. And I was like, whoa. She, she sure demands, you know, demands, commands yeah. the stage. And of course, I had no idea why or anything like that. But I continued going to the drama club. And I never spoke to that <laughs> boy again. Never talked to the boy. <laughs> Never got, I still was too shy. And so um, she had asked me, what did I want to do, you know? And I really liked the acting bug. So she says, okay, then you should audition for Performing Arts High School. And I said, okay. So I auditioned for Performing Arts High School, but I also was an artist. And so I had a portfolio. I came up with a portfolio for um, art and design. And and the um, performing arts, I went in with a monologue, and um, which I didn't even know what the hell a monologue was for, and I was so scared. Mm-hmm. So I know I didn't do a good job, but they, I remember one thing they did tell me is you had a heavy Puerto Rican accent and you will never be a good actress. That's what they told never me. Never be a good actress? Yes. Oh. They told me that in the audition. That wow. was like... Yes, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm bad, bad, bad. So 
my teacher being who she is, she asked me, well, how did it go? And I told her what they said. And she went, hmm. So one day she pulls me out of my class and she tells the teacher, Wilma is coming with us to see Shakespeare. Wow. And I said, oh, and, and they said, sure. And they let me go. I went with her class, her English. She, she was definitely English teacher. Mm -hmm. And she took us to see Midsummer's Night Dream at what is now called the, I guess it's the public theater now, or Joe Pat. Yeah. And it was wonderful to see these actors in costume and stuff, and and they're talking so fancy. <laughs> and then out comes Puck, and Puck starts doing his first speech on a heavy border Oregon accent. <laughs> And I said, that was a heavy accent. I looked in the program and I see Jaime Sanchez. I said, oh my God, he's Puerto Rican. He's Puerto Rican, you know? And very smart teacher to show me that yeah. even with an accent, you can perform and, yeah. and, and do good theater. He was good. He went mm -hmm. on movies and stuff. I mean, so, that's that same period, I guess, around there when Raul Julia was also at the public and he had a an accent yeah that was years later yeah, yeah. and he i saw his shrew oh my god i was blown away by his shrew mm -hmm. meaning of the shrew oh my god he was fantastic as petruchio he was just fantastic and merle street was his shrew <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and that was really good anyway yeah so so you get, get I got through to high school, right? So high school, yeah. Yeah, I made it to art and design high school, which uh, my art history teacher was phenomenal. She was great. She mm -hmm. taught. She had been around the world, all over the world, and so she had her own slides besides the uh, curriculum that they had, that uh -huh. they were sh uh, shown to us, and I learned about you know. Um, the architecture and and the different periods uh time periods for every art etruscan all the way to what modern art yeah yeah took a leap here you know you had some great but teachers i did have great teachers and i found out that she was the one who started the ch chicle chiclets um uh ad campaigns really yeah Wow. Oh, yeah. She she was fascinating, but she was like from the South. So she mm -hmm. had this fantastic draw, and she always talked to us like that. You know, mm -hmm. and I, I love listening to her every day because of the way she talked and also how she put a story to every slide. You know, mm -hmm. it was a mm -hmm. story. So while I was in high school, there was a, actually a set design program, which I did not do. Mm -hmm. I went into fashion illustration. <laughs> right. I took the first year we took everything, you know, but yeah. they needed they needed uh, plays. So, you know, so they can build sets and stuff. And so mm -hmm. I auditioned for for the play the first year as a fresh as a freshman. And and I didn't know if I was going to get it or not. But even the teacher said, uh, those of you who are here for the first time. Don't expect to be in the play at all. So I auditioned for this play, Impromptu, 
And I did it. And then she says, you stay. And so I said, okay. And then she had me and a senior sitting next to each other. And she pointed, she told the senior, I know you're supposed to do this part. And you look the part to the other, to the senior. And he said, but Wilma acts the part. <laughs> now that's kind of messed up to say, but still. Oh, I know. But I was like, oh shit, you know. And then she, she made a deal with both of us. We will both get a performance. Oh, cool. Okay. So we both performed on different mm -hmm. days. And well, that's good. I'm sure the other actor, knowing that and hearing that, would also kind of have watched your performance to see what was it that you were doing that made it that you were being the part in a way that they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. So. So um, I heard laughing and applause, and I really, really dug it. Especially there was the thing that I did that I wasn't aware of. Uh -huh. I had no idea what it was. I now know it's timing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that stuff, yeah. Yeah, which mm -hmm. I happened to do pretty good. And because all of a sudden, when I did it, the audience started applauding and it was crazy, you know? And I said, oh, you know, so um, I got hooked. And for the next three years, I was in every single play. Wow. Yeah. So I did a lot of plays there. And, and then I ended up going to FIT mm -hmm. for a couple of years. And I. So you were still thinking in terms of being a designer? Uh, illustrator. Oh, fashion illustrator, which there's yeah. money in that. Absolutely yeah. money, you know? But um, I got good at doing figure drawings and uh, illustrating. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but. I still acted in in um, in FIT. They had a, a a drama club, so I did musicals there. Oh, really? I didn't know FIT had. I, well, I guess for the designers, they would want to have something that they could control like that. Well, yeah, whatever. But you yeah. know, it was an extracurriculum thing, and so mm -hmm. I did that. Uh, I remember I did the boyfriend, but I never got to do West Side Story because I left the year. They did it the year after I left, which was uh -huh. a bummer. A bummer. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we did uh -huh. a, a few things like that, and I, I worked in the um, in the ornament in uh, shoe ornament industry for a while. Oh, really? So, what is what does that exactly mean? Like I, making things that are on shoes? I could not make the shoes. Uh -huh. I actually would draw the shoes that they bought from Europe. And they, those shoes will come here in a big, huge suitcase. And each of them had ornaments, and I would draw the shoe mm -hmm. and put it in the catalog. And that would be made available to all the companies that make shoes in the United States. Huh. Okay. And so, because people need eyelets, people need little things for the loafers on the top or whatever, right. and they would do a casting of those ornaments for shoes oh. and and yeah it was kind of interesting but it was like i don't want to do this for the rest of my life you know right because it's not as as creative you're kind of copying somebody else's stuff yeah it, it was basically you know draw the shoe draw the ornament as detailed as possible measure it and then put it in the book and mm. then 
People come, they visit, they look at the book. They say, oh, let me see the shoe. Oh, okay. I think I'll take uh, like three or four or five dozen of those ornaments, you know, whatever they bought. But um, yeah, that was one of my jobs. (laughs) And then I came here. (laughs) So so how did you meet your first husband? In a nightclub. I'm just curious. (laughs) In a nightclub. (laughs) In a nightclub. Well, that's a good, that's, that's a place to meet people. In a blonde wig. (laughs) It was a social experiment. (laughs) (laughs) I was so sick and tired of these blondes, you know, getting attention. And I said, I want to see if blondes do have more fun. (laughs) So I had a wig, blonde wig, and I put my hair up and I put on the wig and I look cute. I look cute in it, totally different. So me and my girlfriends, we went out to party on 86th Street. And there was, um, it was really, really interesting how people were drawn to the blonde. Really? Yeah. It's so weird because, you know, like, like I watch a lot of old movies, a mm. lot of old movies. And there's this point where it used to be that if somebody was blonde in a movie, it was like Jean Harlow or something. Yeah. That they were the villain. And the good girl was normally the brunette. Oh, the bad girl, yeah. Yeah, the bad girl was blonde, and the good girl was a brunette. And then somewhere in the 60s, it was suddenly blondes have more fun, and the blondes became the heroes, and the brunettes became the bad girls. Yeah. It's just this weird, like, I don't know if it's just marketing, it's just a sell hair dye, or if it was because well, it went, like... Oh, it to be saved, like, Fay Ray and King yeah. Which is ridiculous. Or if it was just because California and the beach bleached blonde, uh, sun bleached hair thing yeah. came in or whatever. But there's that switch. Yeah. And uh, so you were a blonde for that night. For that night. And how were you? Tra- how how different was it? How different? Yeah. I had some German dude follow me, and I was like, I'm scared. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he can say you're so cute. I want to put you on a mantle. I said, uh uh. No, no. And so I went to a salsa club, you know, and he followed me into salsa club. And he happened to know how to salsa. Wow. Heard of. But then um, my ex-husband saw me and he started dancing with me. And then he said, you're cute. You're cute. And then all of a sudden he says, I want to photograph you. And I said, oh, he was a photographer. Oh, that's right. He was a cameraman. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I said. Okay. And he says, I'm going to, uh, we'll, we'll go to Central Park. Okay. I said, oh, sure. So we, he photographed me in, in a, in a rowboat, looking at plants, looking at this, whatever, you know. And then he Did said. Did still have the wig on all that time? Yes. Because it was, I hadn't told him yet. So oh. we were in the boat, you know, he goes, um. I've never seen a blonde Puerto Rican before. <laughs> and I said, that's because I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you still haven't. You still haven't. This is yeah. not me. And he goes, what? And so I went like this. I moved my scalp and the wig yeah. moved like that. And he goes, whoa! He got freaked out because it moved. And I said, you, oh, you think, oh, I see. You think I'm a real blonde. No, I'm not. He said, well, what hair color are you? And he's trying to sneak a peek. And I said, no, 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 you can't do that. If you want to see my true hair color, then you have to ask me for a proper date. Mm. 
And so he did. And I came out as my, my, as a brunette. <laughs> and we, you know, we kept going. Kept mm. going. And he, uh, like, a year later, he asked me to marry him. And eventually I came out here. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys moved out here because he got a job as a cameraman for, yeah. what did you say, was it KPIX or KRON? Uh, KGO. KGO. Yeah. And so when you came out, what were you thinking you were going to do if he's going to be doing that? I was hoping to see if somebody would hire me as a fashion illustrator, which I did get hired. But it's so sad because this Japanese designer in Berkeley who was doing all these beautiful um, work. You know, I went and all, I took my portfolio, this huge ass portfolio. And she looked at the drawings and then she goes... I love your style. Uh, I want you to illustrate my fashion. And I said, oh, great, great, cool. And then she goes, well, how much for each drawing? And I said, $125 each drawing. And she goes, I, I can't afford it. I can't do that. And I said, well, how much can you afford? She said, $5 a drawing. Whoa. And I was like, that's, you want a color drawing of your fashion. You see what I do. I really can't do that. So please, please, please. She begged, begged, begged. And I said, okay, I'll do it for you. But only if the next time you got to pay me more. You're going to see how long it takes me. I work like five hours each drawing. So I made a mm. dollar an hour, basically. Right. And I never heard from her again. The drawings went to Japan. So I don't know what happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, so that kind of showed you a little uh, of the economy. Uh, yeah, of, of a fashion illustrator. And then photography was like becoming more and more the thing, uh, the medium that the fashion magazines were using. During that time, it was both illustration mm -hmm. and and um and photography but then photography just took over it's so much cheaper <laughs> yeah right yeah because you get a whole plate of things and then you go i'll take that one that one that one you know and that's it and mm. yeah so i started giving it up and so i started pursuing um um i met up with some people uh, from Contra Costa College, this professor who was living in Berkeley, of all places, Kensington, you know, the big high-priced place. Yeah. But the whole building was housing artists. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, she had, uh, she was putting together a group called Los Los um, Los Moles. Los Moles? Was it? Oh, shoot. I don't know. But anyway, I want to see Sobilado, but that was the Mexican uh, group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it was, yeah, like like moles, the moles. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so we would do hit and run theater, basically. It was during the Vietnam War, and we would basically create sketches and go out in the streets, go to Embarcadero, go to anywhere. And we would do clown acts, pantomime, and mm -hmm. then start 
the sketch. Huh. That sketch was always a, a anti-war, and it was bespoken. Mm-hmm. So that first summer, that first summer I, I I came to the Bay Area, I saw the San Francisco Mime Troupe at Live Oak Park, mm-hmm. and, and I was like, <gasps> political theater! Oh my God, I want to do this, you know. And I was so taken aback. It was Dragon Lady's Revenge. Mm-hmm. I was, oh, like, yeah. I I was so like, oh my God, this is this is so right on, you know. And I want to do, do this. I want to do this. And it wasn't until nine years later that I finally joined the company, or I was asked to audition. Yeah. So, so were you you were working with other theaters in the meantime? Not really. I did a few plays. I did a few mm-hmm. plays, but I had a baby. And so oh, right. um, it was kind of difficult, but I did work with Carlos Barón and Teatro Latino in, in the mission. And we did mm-hmm. a few things. We did a play about Lolita Lebron that we toured in Mexico. Oh, and, wow. and she was actually freed. All the prisoners were freed, and we got to meet some of them in Mexico City at the time oh. we were there. But we were like all over the place in Mexico and um, it was a big play. The first time we did this play, we didn't even know how long it was. It was four hours. Oh God. Hours. And people stayed. (laughs) People stayed. We had an orchestra. We had a big salsa band. We had, Music, dance, everything, you know, and the whole story of of of, of Lolita Lebron and how she came mm-hmm. about. And it was interesting because all the women were Lolita Lebron in some form or phase in this play. But the mm-hmm. play was too damn long. <laughs> yeah. But eventually got cut down and we took it to Mexico and toured all over the place. You know, people would come and see it. It had Spanish in it. It had English in it. And it was very well received. And, wow. Yeah. And how, how, how long did it end up being? If it started at like four hours, when you cut it down, how long was it? You know, I don't remember. <laughs> it was still But long. it was short. That's the key. It was shorter. <laughs> <laughs> Not short, but shorter. Yeah, because, you know, I was working with Carlos Barón, who ended mm-hmm. up being at, at San Francisco State. And yeah, everything was precious. This place. You know, you the writers always, everything is precious. But yeah. you, of all people, you actually know how to edit and cut things. It's good. I came across a few... Can't be too long in the parks. Oh, my God. Uh, so Carlos was precious with with the material and I just said, well, you don't want the audience to leave, right? <laughs> and they need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, at some point. Yeah. So it's tough because you're like, as a writer, you're trying to create this whole world. I mean, you know this as a writer also. Yeah. You know, you want to create this whole world and it and it can't end up like every thought, every word, everything that you're saying is like another rock or a tree or a mountain. And it's, it's like, you know what? Yeah. Maybe the whole planet's too big. You need to tell the story of a smaller planet and just get rid of some of those chunks. Yes. You know, save that for the next play. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
So, so you got to tour through Mexico doing this show. Yes. That must, that, at, you know, and at that particular time, what was that like? That was wonderful. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I remember arriving in uh, Puerto Vallarta, which mm -hmm. was a beautiful town, beautiful town. I fell in love with Puerto Vallarta. And I think it was that Thanksgiving time because there were some expats having turkey. But we arrived and nobody knew we were coming. But one of the guys, I think it was Mike Rios, who is also a famous muralist, he says, I have an uncle who's in the pre, in the political party. Mm -hmm. So he went to his uncle's. They went on the radio the following morning, and then the following day after that, 2,000 people show up at the plaza where the play was going to take place, and our background was the Pacific Ocean. Ooh. It had these mm -hmm. arches, like Greek arches, mm -hmm. and through the arches, you see the Pacific Ocean. So we performed in front of that. We didn't need a set, you know? <laughs> That was just gorgeous, no? Mm. But, but before that, I did go to Mexico before that for mm. um, the first encounter of Latin American theater and and Chicano theaters in 1970. Mm -hmm. I want to say 74. And we went mm -hmm. to Mexico City and they put us up all over the city. There were 500 Chicano theater is at that time in the country. Yeah. In yeah. Yeah. Those were the days. Performing for free. Mm -hmm. um, and Dorinda Moreno had called me and said, um, I want you to direct. Uh, really? Wow. Yeah. I have this group of women and we, we want you to direct. And I said, okay. So I would show up and I had a friend who played guitar and we sang some songs, some political songs. And um, and there were people who wrote poetry, who wrote sketches, who danced, all this. It was a hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. and, and Dorinda Moreno was a poet, so we did things to her poetry. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, she says, come to Mexico. Come to Mexico with us. And I said, what? I, I have a baby. He said, ah, no, no problem. Bring the baby along. You know, just bring the baby along. We're, we're all bringing our children. Mm -hmm. so, so a woman's political theater company heading to Mexico City with babies and children. And mm -hmm. when they saw us there, they put us up in the monastery. Everybody else slept on the floor somewhere. Huh. <laughs> and we thought, oh, shoot. You know, it only cost 50 bucks to get huh. across the border to go to Mexico City on a train. Mm. On oh. a, yeah. So I learned so much. Yeah. I, saw, I saw all these theater companies from Latin America. They were wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the political theater from Bogota. Enrique Buenaventura, who's, he was like tremendous. And um, because I was a director, mm -hmm. there was this 
director's meeting. I was the only mm-hmm. woman there. Mm-hmm. The only woman there. And I said, uh, well, Ma, you don't know shit. You don't mm-hmm. even, even know anything about directing. You know, you just stay quiet. And I would bring my baby. And I'm there with the baby. And I'm listening to all these uh, directors talking. Uh, Augusto Boal, who started the People's yeah. Argentina. And all these. Uh, and, and, and Enrique Buenaventura. And I'm like, oh. I didn't even know who they were. I started learning while I was there. Mm-hmm. And then I started telling people who I met. They all said, what? And, and then, you know, um, and plus directors from the U.S. theaters. Um, mm-hmm. And I just sat there quietly just listening to them talking about politics. And we, we were discussing the theater company that had performed the night before every Every morning there was a discussion of the performance that we had seen the night before. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, wow. yeah. So would that theater company be there and kind of talk about their show and their process mm-hmm. and stuff? No. No. Hmm. They should have been there. The theater company that we were discussing that time was uh, Teatro Campesino. Oh, really? And they, were, they had just done the Calpa de los Rescuaches. And the mm-hmm. ending was very controversial, very mm-hmm. controversial, because they had this guy, this the hero, um, the yeah, the hero or whatever, who was a Vietnam soldier who turned into Christ, who turned into into Che, who turned back into Christ all, all, at the end. Mm-hmm. So for them, they started discussing. What did that mean? And what are you trying to tell people? That Chet is Christ? Huh. No. You can't send that kind of message. Mm-hmm. You know, they were hardcore. They were. Now, was Valdez there during the discussion or had they already taken off? Uh, I don't remember them being there. Hmm. But that discussion was taken down by this, uh, oh, I want to say, oh, my God, how do I forget his name, but he used to be, he started out with uh, another theater company, Esperanza. Oh, yeah. And became a doctor of theater and uh, taught at UCLA, I believe. Um, But he took all those notes, Hmm. which Mr. You know, Valdez was not happy with. (laughs) But, you know, that's, that's it. They, they believe in God. They, but the people at the table, they did not believe in God. They believed right. in, you know, the revolution. Right. And they felt... You don't have to bring Jesus into it. Exactly. Now, now, I have a question. So, you were saying that, so you got to, you know, the West Coast, and you're living over there, and you're, and, you you know, you, and you've got, you know, a baby, um, and you're not doing the fact, and then you said you did some shows before you were with the Myron Troop, and you were kind of like, eh, not that many. But the ones you did were so amazing and you're off and you're touring, you know, Mexico and how did you manage to work with these, with all of these uh, influential people and, and in these amazing projects, were you hanging out with the right group? Did you just kind of pick which things you wanted to audition for, or just you're running into people through politics or how did that happen? Well, I, I know I'm downplaying what I did during the seventies, but many times 
I was asked to perform at Rally. And at, oh, really? Which was only in the 70s. And so what they did was basically come up with something. We were the entertainment, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I did like the Puerto Rican obituary, the poem, and I got a bunch of women together and we did uh, the, the, the poem, which was like, just speaks to the working class and how we're not seen and forgotten. Mm-hmm. And beautiful lines like, they, they work, they work, and they die, which is in the poem. So I turned it into a theatrical production. <laughs> 15 minutes, you know, it was long, it was a long ass poem, but we did it. And then one time they said, um, yeah, can you write a sketch about housing? Huh. And I did. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I said, we're not getting paid for any of this, you know, and we were putting our time a lot of because I was writing sketches. And I didn't consider myself a writer or anything like that. I was just talking from what I had, stories. Mm-hmm. I would just make and And eventually I said, you know, you guys should give us some gas money at least, you know? At least, yeah. At least. And eventually uh, all the artists got together and we created an organization um, that was basically um, uh, artists asking for, you know, if you want us to be there, uh, then you have to pay for us. Mm-hmm. And it was up to us how much we wanted to get paid, but we didn't even think about getting paid for theater or art, you know, to do art in for free. It, it was something that we thought was demanded of us, you know, mm-hmm. that it was was something that we needed to give to people. So I had my own theater company called Teatro Claridad that I created. Mm-hmm. Basically, Teatro Claridad uh, dealt with women's rights and um, and children and the rights mm-hmm. of children. And so teaching them, I felt it was very important that we taught the children what's right and what's wrong. So I had this and somebody said oh can you come to the school and do a play for the kids is this yeah sure <laughs> and we started getting invited here and there and i had you know these two clowns Cucci and frita who would do um talk about the sterilization in puerto rico in a very funny sketch but we would you know bring out political themes like that so a lot of the mime troopers the old troopers they saw me performing during those times. Oh, you were doing the plays about doing the school shows. Yeah. 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 And the, oh, and the farm oh, troop members had started to see that. The North. We considered the U.S. the monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a series of plays about like that, but we, we were putting, you know, for kids to understand, you know, what the monster was taking away from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, so we ended up, you know, people were saying, well, yeah, we can pay. How's $300? I said, uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. In those days, that was actually money. Yeah, yeah it was a lot of money, actually. Yeah, in those days, then. that's like a mortgage payment. 
or yeah. rent easily. Rent easily, so, yes. So then you said that um, some mantra people had started to hear about you and see some of the shows. Yeah. And so how did that, how did you find out about that? Did they start talking to you and saying, hey, you know, you should come over. We got something for you. Well, they, they, they always talked to me when they would see the shows, you know. They were always interested in what I was, um, and asked me to audition for uh, Squash. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, to take Maria Acosta's part because she couldn't tour. So I said, oh, okay. So I did. Yeah, that's us. Like you, so you came in as a replacement actor. Yes. Yeah, that's why I came in as a replacement actor. Lena came in as a replacement actor. So many people, it's like somebody yeah. does the summer show and then they can't do it, and then it gives us a chance. Yeah, a chance that's... to perform, you know? Yeah. And I was so excited and intimidated totally by the whole history of the mime troupe. So it was, it was, it was good. It was uh, a good experience. And, um, and then, you know, uh, after it, it, I remember it was a, a fall show and we were going up to the Northwest mm-hmm. and we hit all these different towns, Bellingham, you know, Eugene, Oregon, all these towns up in the North, which is so different. It's kind of sad that, you, that the mantra doesn't do that anymore. Cause yeah. People, yeah. yeah, but now it's not the same. And at that time, I was getting paid a hundred dollars a week to work with the mime troupe. Mm. Were you I still left. doing your other companies? Um, yeah, I was doing also puppet shows. No, actually, once she joined the mime troupe, that's it. You know, you mm-hmm. can't do anything. They want you twenty four seven almost. So. <laughs> So, but I, I had come from a $800 job, $800 a month job um, to this, mm-hmm. to 400 but I just decided, you know, that I wanted to do theater full time. And mm-hmm. I, and she just said, and I, at the time I got, I got called for Teatro Esperanza to audition for Teatro Esperanza and also for the Mime Troupe. And I I had to make a decision. And my daughter said, go with the Mime Troupe. They're funnier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good thing. Really? She loved them. So so when when you're doing uh, uh, squash, who else was in that show? That's that's like one mantra show I never, you know, at, when I was uh, as a kid. So what what who was in it? Uh, Dan Ford. So I'm talking Dan Chumley, mm-hmm. and of course Sharon Lockwood. Who else was in it? Patricia Silver. Mm. Who else? Um, I think Arthur Holden was in it as well. You might have been there. I think I've heard that. Yeah. And, and then the Maria, and you took her part. Yeah. Oh. So, how long was it? Also, Oropesa. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah. so how long was it 
between doing that first show and kind of ending up becoming a collective member and a, a permanent member of the company? About six months. Oh. Yeah. Um, I came in after we did that tour. They said, okay, we, we need to have a meeting. And they said, we're going to go to Europe with squash. <clears throat> and I said, oh, oh. <laughs> and I said, I was looking forward to it. And I said, well, I need to bring my daughter with me then. Because that's too long. I mean, they were yeah. talking a month. And then I explained to them that my daughter was ill. She had cystic fibrosis and she needed care. And <clears throat> I would have to give her physical therapy. And I would have to bring a special machine that I usually brought in. And, uh, and probably find out where I can take her in case she gets sick. And Joan just, what? What? You didn't tell us that you had a sick daughter and I was like what and she says Evelina Fernandez auditioned for us and she wanted to bring her baby on the tour and we said no because we didn't want her to bring her baby on the tour and now you're gonna bring a sick daughter on the tour no way and I said what and I got really so bad that I literally hold them off. I said, ah, so this is the San Francisco mind troop, the politically correct San Francisco mind troop. Mm -hmm. It is against single mothers and sick children, children with disability. I said, I'm ashamed to even know any of you. And I walked out. And then a month later, Barry, Barry loves me up and says, Wilma, we want you to be part of the San Francisco Mind Tree. You told us off like that. You, you're going to be part of the Mind Tree. <laughs> so, so you have to tell them off. You know how to yeah. get into the troop. You know, so that's what happened. I was like totally, you know, I, I was shocked. Because mm -hmm. that was things that they were pushing for, you know, the right. rights of mothers, the rights of disabled people, and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, here they were faced with, and they, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it's like there's so many times where you hear about, you know, these revolutionary groups and stuff, and then. And then they're like out there and marching and doing all this stuff and making their own yogurt and wrapping their babies in rags and all of this stuff. And then you find out, actually, it's the women doing a bunch of that stuff. While the men are out there doing, you know, uh, running around, pretending to be all into okay. equality, but they're relying on the women. You know, they're relying on the women to stay oh, home yeah. and it ends up being very traditional. So. True. True. Yeah, yeah, it did. So and, that, that, and that calling people on that, this is fucked up, is important. Yes. During that time, we, we literally, um, we were calling people on all these issues a long way off. And I know that, you know, there was this, yeah, they were all political and men love to proselytize. But you know what? That's the way it is. 
I was actually in the Puerto Rican Socialist Party during the 70s. Mm-hmm. I would go and sell newspapers from Puerto Rico, the, the Socialist newspaper. And, um, and I got pushed out to the front to speak. So I spoke at a lot of rallies, mm-hmm. a lot of political rallies. And a lot of people from the uh, left complained about me. Really? They said that I was a very simple talker. I didn't use terminology. And so I was going, oh, shit. But I didn't have to go far with it because the president of of, of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party just looked at him and he says, that's because you talk over people's head and Wilma speaks to the worker and the people in the audience. Mm-hmm. You speak over people's head and we stand mm-hmm. behind her because she speaks to the people. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Everybody was like, you know, these people from the universities and they're very right. very condescending to the folk. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's all the um manifestos and everything else. Anyway, but eventually I left that. I did I did appear in the Black Panther paper once. <laughs> really? Yes. Wow, what, what what was that like? I, what happened? I, with my afro. This <laughs> so you went from a blonde, blonde wig to an afro. I, I, I didn't wear wig until I got into the mime troupe again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only for performance, okay? <laughs> mm. But, no, I had a afro. My hair was natural, and I, and I was invited to speak on behalf of the, of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party. So I did. And they took a picture of me and they put it on the front page of the of the Black Panther newspaper. So, wow. hello. Yeah. yeah. Did, you have, did you get a copy of the paper? Do you still I have one? It. I think I do, but I don't know where it is. I would have oh. to search. It's oh, you got to find that. Part, you know? Mm. And I keep telling people that and they don't believe me. See? You know? That's why you got to have a copy. You got to got to yeah. have your receipt. You got to keep your receipt of your revolutionary work. Because oh, a lot of people yeah. say they would But do. now it's easier. Now it's easier. But like yeah. I was, it was really difficult to keep track of all these things. And how I got it speaking was really weird. I just spoke in front of the, uh, of the U.S. consulate down in San Francisco because they wanted me to speak. They said, Wilma, you talk. And I go, what? <laughs> you talk. And so I just started talking about, you know, the injustices that have taken place in Puerto Rico and all this stuff. And before you know it, they started inviting me, inviting me, inviting me. But I, I didn't expect to be on the front, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do theater. I wanted to do art, you know, and I wanted mm-hmm. to do theater for the people. Um, I felt that that was important because you uh, message gets across more easily through a play, a speech with all these big fancy words, you know? Right. Yeah, 
it's some different. Of hearing it, hearing the revolution or seeing the revolution, you know, seeing stuff embodied and seeing that is so much different than yeah, like you're saying, it's there. I mean, you need the intellectualism on a certain level, but it's got its place, and its place isn't yeah. everywhere. Yeah, you have to remember who you. Yeah, your audience. Who are they? They're people. They're just simple people. And if you want to reach even more people, which is the working class, then you have to speak their language. And that's why yeah. it was great in the Mime Troupe. We created working class people that spoke like them. You know, mm -hmm. you have to speak to the people. Otherwise, you lose them. You lose them. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. So you, That's how long were you with the you know, uh, Not as long oh, as you. you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, don't my remind. God, my applause to you, you know, because I don't know how you can take it. I would say I was, what was it, five years, five years, almost, almost six years, almost. Mm. I did Spain 36 in right. um in LA Theater Center. I play Franco and the love interest. I did those two parts. Mm -hmm. uh, still got the and pictures of you as Franco all over the place. And I used that sh the, there's a shot of you, you know, standing there. I think you're are you are you with Sharon? I can't remember, but there are these great she photographs of the, you. The, yeah. the Spanish nobility nobility, yeah. 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 And um yeah, I love playing that because I found what helped me make this character come through, you know? I found a pair of boots that were size 12 men's. Mm -hmm. and, and I started walking around with them and I gave the walk that I needed for this military guy. Franco literally was five feet tall. And really? so Joan looked around and says, Wilma, you're five feet, right? You should play Franco. <laughs> so, okay. And then half mask. So we had all these wonderful workshops with uh, mask and learn how the different angles, mm -hmm. how tell a story, you know. And then as soon as I put on the mask with a little teeny-weeny military hat on top, and then my belly's out, and I had this coat, and I had these huge boots on, it was like a clownish kind of look for Franco, but a dangerous clown, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it worked, except that nobody knew that it was a woman playing Franco when I was doing it at the L.A. Theater Center. Hmm. And, and, and I was playing the love interest. The so last when you came out to bow at the end. I had, had a coat on. And I had some boots on that were belonged to the love interest because the last thing they climbing over the Pyrenees, mm -hmm. and and I take a bow in this color. And then one night, like it was a few weeks, the stage manager on stage left. She goes, "Give me your coat." And I said, "Why?" And underneath, I had Frankel's uh, long johns, so. She says, just give me your coat. Now go. And I went out there and I and I bow and the whole audience stood on its feet and they were applauding me. And who should be in the second row 
George Takai, he was on his feet applauding and I was going, <gasps> you know, so nobody knew until I took the coat off. Yeah. So they were like surprised. Everybody was surprised. And so, you know, yeah. So people were all of a sudden like, who is you? Where'd she come from? Da, 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 you know? And, um, yeah, I, I could have stayed in L.A. and done stuff. I actually went to L.A. and after the mime troupe and stayed there. And um, um, there was this friend of mine, Michael, who used to be in the mime troupe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had gone to Warner Brothers. And, uh, and the woman that he saw at casting saw that he was in the mine, in the San Francisco mine trees. Oh, do you know the little redhead that play Franco? <laughs> and he goes, yes. Yes, that's what you want to hear if you're an actor going into something. Right. Can you tell me about another actor, please? Somebody else. And so he was so jealous. Oh, my God. She told him, do you know if she's coming down? I said, yeah, she's coming down. As a would you please have her call me as soon as she comes down? So he calls me and gives me the information reluctantly. Mm-hmm. And then when I say Monday, I'm down there, I call up and I say, hi, um, this is Wilma Bonet. There was silence. So I said, the little redhead that play Franco? And she goes, oh my God, are you in town? <laughs> I said, yes. Come Wednesday. I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to talk to you. Yes, yes. I had no agent. I had no in cards. Nothing. Nothing. But that day, she quickly grabbed Warner Brothers and introduced me to Marion Dougherty and introduced me to all these casting people. I managed to get a five-minute video done from uh, Troopers. I had my friend cut, made a nice edit edit of some scenes that I'm in there and they people were just eating it up so I had a VHS copy <laughs> yes I'm that old and you know so we uh, she showed it to everybody and then you know I go I don't even have an agent and he said I, I even had the guts to say well do you know anybody that you would recommend and she goes, I'm not supposed to do that. Mm. But then she gave me five names. So I went to see who they were, you know, and went to them. And eventually I got one. But it was hard to get work because you didn't have a union card. And most people didn't want to hire you because they felt bad that all your money was going to go to a union card. Mm. So eventually I came home and I got my union cards here in the Bay oh, Area. Really? Yeah. 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 So that, back when they were shooting all those television shows and uh, in the and Bay Area. Movies. Yeah. yeah. Those were the and, days. Hmm. Yeah. Sad. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> so after oh. so you, you you leave the mime troupe and you you you've gone to L.A. and you've done that for a little while and you come back and so then you decided to stay in the Bay Area after that you didn't go to New, back to New York or anything but you end up working a a lot around the Bay Area and all over the country yeah. still. So how did you, um, why did you decide to stay in the Bay Area? 
as opposed to like going to New York or something. Um, that's interesting. Um, I didn't want to live in New York. Mm-hmm. Somebody who grew up in New York, I was I was ripped off three times before mm-hmm. I was eight. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to live in an environment that literally, you know, I'm sure during the blackout, everybody helped each other. But then during every other day, people, you didn't know if you were going to be, you know, mm-hmm. up. And so I was living with that. And, you know, by the third time I lost my leather purse and I told the guy, oh, just leave the purse. There's only seven dollars in it, you know. It was, it was like I was tired of buying some nice leather bags and getting ripped off, you know. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to live there, and I, I, I like the idea of being near a city that has trees, <laughs> and the bear actually beautiful, you know. Yeah. And nature here is just beautiful. I felt really, um, I felt good in this area you know I felt like it was right and Mm -hmm. I could have gone back to LA I could have but it's interesting that everything that I've done have been here you know and Mm -hmm. and have taken me to other places and from here I did go to LA to the Marte Perform to do Electricidad you know and Mm -hmm. it's great being there but um, it's a good place to tour to, but maybe not to live. Yeah. Well, it's different. It's a big, huge place, and the traffic is horrendous down there. But, you know, I had a great... so long to get anywhere when you're down there. Two hours. And I didn't have a car when I first was there. It took... Mm. It, I would do everything with buses. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, no. It, no. It, the one thing, it, like, I was in L.A. one time, and it was uh, the first time I was working with the Actors Gang, and... Everybody said, you know, if you're an actor in L.A., you're never supposed to take the bus because someone might see you on the bus. And if they see you on the bus, that means you're a loser actor. And so finally, one day I I walked from uh, from the Actors Gang Theater all the way to the beach and my feet were tired and I got on a bus coming back. And the bus was beautiful to Culver City. It was like me and three uh, uh, women. It was they were empty. It was clean because nobody used them. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to remember this. So for you actors down there, take the bus. Nobody will see you because nobody's on the damn thing. That's right. Who's going to see you? <laughs> Fine. So now, so being up here, you've still had enough, you know, going on. And like, like, so you did one of the voices for Coco. Yes, I did. Yeah. I worked right. on, the, uh, on the voice development, uh, on the character development for six years. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, so I all did. through that time, even when you were direct, came back to the mime troupe to direct uh, shows, you were working on that all that time. Oh, yeah. And even when I was in Ashland, they flew me down to do recordings and stuff. Um, and I think I was in the running. I was in the running because they told my agent, we like her a lot. So I was in the running for Abuela. And eventually mm-hmm. it went to somebody in L.A. That's the only thing about this industry is they're going to go with somebody they know has a whole history of filmmaking or films that they've done. So I was not known. I mean, I'm actually, I got lucky because um, 
the director liked me so much that when he called me in for the last day that I did voiceovers for him, um, he came in with a stack of scripts and he was like pissed off and stuff. And he was like, um, I want you to do something. You've been with us for so long. I want you to do something in this film. And, he, and I, I don't even remember what voices I, I finally recorded. It's just that they invited me for the, for the screening at Pixar. And mm. they told me, you have a character. Her name is Tia Chela. And I go, what? Oh, that's cool. And they gave me the sweatshirt that Miguel wears in the movie. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah, that says Coco and has the white stripes on his red uh, sweatshirt. So Mr. Valdez wasn't the only one who had one. (laughs) (laughs) He's not the only one. Now, the other thing that has been one of your big passions besides all of this is Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Comic-Con! I remember when, every time when you would come in and, re- and direct for us, and it was like, okay, and you'd be like, all right, when are we going to open? When is this going to happen? Because, yeah. Oh, that is so cute. That is so cute. That's baby Yoda. The baby Yoda mask. Um, and so so why why did you get so much into Comic-Con? How did that happen? I don't know. It's the... Um, I don't know. Um... All I can remember is that we used to read comic books when we were little. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, one of my favorite comics was the classic comic book. You remember those? Oh, yeah, yeah. It had huge books. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't read the book. I read the comic book. And then right. I report on that. <laughs> yeah, I remember, yeah, Golden Key Classics. That was the mm-hmm. first time I read Frankenstein was a Golden Key Classic. And then later I was like, I'm going to actually read the novel, but comic books were so good they were good they had pictures yeah perfect perfect yeah and i remember that during that time superman batman you know it 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 was it was there and we used to watch superman like the first one with reeves george reeves Mm -hmm. yeah used to watch that okay every saturday night head out of the sky and there is superman is it a bird is it a plane it's superman so I could say I grew up with that, you know, and also the fact that um, watched the old Batman's with Adam West and mm-hmm. and um, the Riddler and oh my God, all those characters were great. It's a fantasy world that I actually enjoyed, and it was funny too, you know. But um, I know that my brother, lucky him, he loved the Silver Surfer. Mm. And he has the first comic book. He's really. Yes, he does. Hey, hey, I still have, I believe, a first edition Luke Cage Hero for Hire. Oh my God! First one. Yeah, I I bought it as a kid, and I loved that comic book, and, and I kept it all these years. You have a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. You better. Yep. That's what people do down there. You can literally go to Comic-Con and search for old editions, and they have tons and tons and tons of, of stuff like that. And I kind of like that. I also like the fact that Spain, who was our um, yeah. poster, poster maker, artist, Spain Rodriguez for years, yeah. 
He actually was in the original Comic-Con, which took place in San Francisco, but I never went to those. I didn't know about it. My sister turned me on to Comic-Con in LA, and eventually I got a ticket, and I went, and I said, oh, this is great. Then the following year, I couldn't buy a ticket, so I volunteered for the organization mm -hmm. because it's all run by volunteers. And all you had to do was work three hours, and the rest of the day, you're free. And really? that was great for every yeah. day that you went, you know? And so eventually, they, they liked what I was doing, and they, they, they had me work for six hours. And, uh, and working as a six-hour meant that I... I worked the whole room. So I worked in a room that will help 2,000 people and uh, got to meet all these, um, uh, you know, like Nathan Fillion and and even Neil deGrasse was there because he, he's a big, big Comic-Con man. Yeah. Wow. He always called. He's always called for the science fiction movies. Mm-hmm one of the consultants and everything. And hearing him talk was like, <laughs> you know, just blow my mind. And so I'm sitting people down and I'm like, <gasps> you know, watching, I, I'm such a geek. I didn't know I was such a geek, you know, <laughs> but- You have to find your geekdom. Yes. And you found your geekdom. Most but people never find their geekdom. You embrace your geekdom. <laughs> yes. Because it actually works. And all of a sudden, it became a big deal with everybody, you know? Comic-Con got, it's worldwide. It's, yeah. you know, people travel from other countries to come to the one in San Diego, and now there's Comic-Cons everywhere. And, right. and, and also the power. It's like there was a few years ago when they were, uh, I think it was Indiana, that was like siding against marriage equality and saying, you know, we're going to outlaw this and gays shouldn't get married and all this stuff. And that's when Comic-Con said, oh, really? In that case, we're not going to do our Comic-Con in your state. Yeah. And they reopened that question and <laughs> said marriage equality is okay because Comic-Con is, is such a big deal. It, it brings in so much money okay. and they didn't want to offend all of these people dressed like Wookiees, you know? They didn't yeah. want to piss off the aliens and have them vote another way. Yeah. So... San Diego is going to be hurting this year. A lot. Yeah, yeah, I know. This is this was their big money maker. All the hotels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Comic Con just sent a notice. They canceled the Comic Con for this year, and but I can use the ticket for next year if if that still. If it's yeah. Buy it. Yeah. I wonder what they'll do. I mean, will they will they try to make smaller ones? You know, as well, opposed to one big one. I mean, when I was a kid, I went to, see, before Comic-Con, I was one of those kids that went to the uh, Star Trek conventions. Yeah. The original Star Trek after the show was canceled. And then they started doing Star Trek conventions. Did and so, I, yeah, so me and my sister would go, we would go and go to like the Oakland Coliseum or the Cow Palace in San Francisco once a year. And all these people would show up with their little Vulcan ears on. And we would see previews for all of these different things. And they would show, um, uh, uh, have, you know, every, like I said, everybody's in costume. And they would have actors from the original Star Trek would come and talk to us. Mm -hmm. And then one year, I remember, I don't know if it was 74 or 75, they, sh they said, oh, there's a preview for this new movie. We want to show all of you guys. And it started and it was Star Wars. 
and it was the first preview of Star Wars on this big screen. And you could see all of the people from, from the Star Trek convention kind of went, oh, no. Because they were like, that's it. Everybody fell in love with the new show. And they only did Star Trek conventions for a few years. And then they started doing sci-fi conventions. Yes. Because, and, and also Star Trek, the conventions achieved their goal, which was to kind of force Paramount or whoever to make the movie. Well, yes. And, and they, once they made that first Star Trek movie, movie yes. then it was like, okay, so, but, yeah, I never wore the ears, you know, but my sister, should have, should have. A lot of Bay Area actors who wore ears and showed up in their uniforms. Yeah, I could have that. My sister, she had, we had, we had like original right. scripts from Star Trek. You know, signed by Leonard Nimoy. Hello. And yeah, so yeah, we were big Star Trek fans, and then, 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 and going to the going to the uh, conventions and stuff. Never made that move into Comic Con, but there's still time. Yeah, every year, every year, there's still time, and now they have one in New York. Really? Yeah, they have now Comic Con West Coast and now East Coast. It's the same people, right? Hmm. So, like the Ren Fair. Yeah, yeah. But it's, well, it's so cool. I mean, there's all these people that show up. They're all geeks, you know. People dress up. Yeah, they dress up. And some of them do a hell of a job. But there's all these workshops. There's all these workshops. There's a whole thing by the Costumers Guild, sponsored by the Costumers, Costumers really? Guild. And they, they, they have particular, you know, how... How are you going to make this and how are you going to do that? How to do weapons, you know, yeah. for your superhero? Because yeah. for a while, you know, people were showing with fantastic stuff. Saturday night, usually at Comic-Con is, is a costume ball, they call it. But, oh, it's, wow. but they have this contest on stage. People come on for one or two minutes with what they have created and it has to be made by them. Mm -hmm. And it has to be, uh, yeah, it has to be made by them. You, the person, must, must wear with And I saw fantastic stuff. There was an uh, uh, awards for people who made armor, which is like the hardest thing to do. But mm -hmm. to make armor out of some plastic stuff that makes it look like armor, I, you know, you go, whoa, you know, that's pretty cool. And of course, this guy, what was it? One year, I felt so bad for him. He did a, a transformer. You know how hard that is to make a transformer go from a car into a tall transformer. Well, he did that. He comes in as a car and then he unveils and gets bigger and taller. I don't know how. I got a feeling it involves some of those uh, tall things that you have to wear on your feet. And then, as he exits, the thing falls apart. Oh. That's exactly what the whole audience did. <sighs> we like, oh, no. We felt so bad for him. You know, so it was eliminated because it mm. fell apart. But mm. people get people are very creative. They create, you know, they get groups. There's a group award and usually the group a little sketch which is very funny 
you know, sometimes, you know, they don't, you know, like one time there was the war of the, of the avatar. So one guy was dressed as avatar from the avatar movie. And the other one was avatar from the airbender. And so <laughs> martial arts stage in those costumes. And I'm going, Oh, that's pretty cool. And you laugh, you laugh, you have a good time, but yeah. It's, so the it's creativity, pretty... it sounds like that's the thing that that draws you is the is that and it's constantly evolving as people are having to make things, actually make things, mm -hmm. and to actually use their imaginations, and you get to see all of this creativity of people that may not have that in their regular lives. They might be accountants or cheesemongers or whatever, but when, are. They, yeah. when they go there, they get to be their their artistic selves. They do, and they get yeah. to listen to some fabulous lectures. Like uh, one year, it was um, uh, Peter Jackson and um, uh, James Cameron. James wow. Cameron? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who did Avatar, right? James yeah. Cameron? Okay. They had a heavy conversation. They were in the future in their heads of what the future of television and, and movies would be like. Mm -hmm. And apparently they're working on that. So scientifically, if you can, if you're into that, you know, you can sit there and listen to what the future is going to be like. Like uh, they were talking a lot about holographic um, uh, performances and making movies that are holographic for the audience to feel immersed in the environment. Yeah, yeah. It was intense. It's like, wow. yeah. It, it would be almost like theater. You yeah. In the environment. Mm. This time, go to the bar in Star Wars rather than and sit there and watch them fight or whatever, but you're there. Mm. You know? Wow. So it was really interesting. And they're talking about how long it would take for them to do the technology and, and what their misses were, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, James Cameron had brought um, the 3D of, of Avatar, and he had right. 20 minutes. Very humble man, very humble. And we were all given these 3D glasses made by Dolby. Each mm -hmm. class cost about $58. They were high class, high end. Okay. So we gave out the glasses to, to the audience members, right, as they were coming in. They never told us that we were supposed to get them back. <laughs> this has been the Mimecast, and I've been Michael Gene Sullivan. Music for the Mimecast is by Dred Scott. Now, if you're interested in seeing video versions of any of these interviews, please check out the San Francisco Mime Troupe YouTube channel. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Power to the people.